Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 250 with Magdalena Yashil. I think you will really find Magdalena's insights valuable because she's coming from a place of genuine experience, very impressive set of credentials and a rise to power. And she's going to share a lot of lessons learned along the way and that have appeared within her research as well as own experience. So you'll learn one, what is the professional ask and why you should do it? Two, how to access and convey greater gravitas, and three, tips for being heard better in meetings. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, you can find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep250. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our handy resources. And one thing I might point you to today is the Gold Nugget email list. So if you are listening to this show while you're running or driving or unable to take notes, but you feel the urge to do so, we take those notes for you and send them to your inbox. Each day there is a new guest that has gone live. So you can sign up at awesomeatyourjob.com or by texting NUG N-U-G to 444-999. Now, here's Magdalena's story. Magdalena Yashil is a founder, entrepreneur, and venture capitalist of many of the world's top technology companies, including Salesforce, where she was the first investor and founding board member. Yashil is a former general partner at U.S. Venture Partners, where she oversaw investments in more than 30 early-stage companies and served on the boards of many. A technology pioneer, Yashil founded three of the first companies dedicated to commercializing internet access, e-commerce infrastructure, and electronic payments. Here is Magdalena. Magdalena, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to do this. Oh, I am too. And I'd love to kick it off if you could share with us the story of when you had to take the SAT, you got there via a ride from a fisherman What's the backstory here? Yes, not the most traditional way to go to the SAT exam. So I have to take you back to 1975 in the late fall. And the women and men in high school in Turkey did not think of going abroad to university. So the SAT exam was something incredibly unique. I had never really heard of it. And I certainly had never seen a multiple choice test before. It was being offered on the European side of the city. Istanbul is a city that is built on two continents, Europe and Asia. I happen to live on the Asian side, and it was being offered starting at 8 a.m., which meant that I should be on my way about 5, 5.30 a.m. Well, it turns out we did not have ferries running that early. So what ended up happening was that my boyfriend took me to the narrowest part of the Bosphorus. And we knew that in that narrow part of the Bosphorus, which is the waterway that divides the Asian from the European side, we would find some fishermen who usually spent the night so that they could go out fishing with dawn. And we were able to wake one up and when offered him enough money and told him what the reason was, he was kind enough to actually take us across on his little baby motorboat, fishing boat, to the European side. 
And then the exam was up a really steep hill in a spot that today is the Bosphorus University. But in those days, it was a school. It was a boys' high school. And not only did we cross the Bosphorus on a fisherman's boat, but then we actually had to hike our way up to the exam venue. The biggest shock, though, wasn't crossing the Bosphorus to get to the SAT on a fishing boat. The biggest shock was actually seeing that you had to answer by coloring in circles the exam questions. I had never seen anything like that before. That was just amazing to me. Oh, well, what a story. And and I think about whenever we're tempted to say, oh, I don't want to inconvenience that person, or I guess I'm out of luck, I can't make it. Just that sheer resourcefulness and determination. And I don't know if you can recall But at the time, just what was the amount of money it takes to get a sleepy fisherman to give you a a ride across? Probably it was five or six liras, probably no more than with the local, with the at time exchange rate, maybe about a dollar. But that was big money for a high school student. Right. Yeah. And then put 40-ish years of inflation there. And okay, I'm with you. All right. So I'll try that out. If if I find myself in that situation, which is very specific, with another urgent need, not SAT is behind me, except in scary dreams. Uh, that to come up from time to time. I guess I'm naked and unprepared for it. Cool. Well, it just shows, first of all, I had a very nice boyfriend who was willing to help me out to make that journey to the exam and that we were very resourceful. We actually were able to think of a way to get me to the other side of the Bosphorus. Yeah, that's great. Well, and so I want to talk about some of your, your resourcefulness. You've packed a whole lot of it in your most recent book called Power Up. Sort of what's the main idea behind the book and why is it important here and now? Yeah, so Power Up, How Smart Women Win in the New Economy is really all about being resourceful and how I, in my career, was able to take advantage of the opportunities and really embrace them with both hands and make do with whatever I had. And it wasn't just me, but also was other women, 27 others that I interviewed for the book. Our learning, our experiences, our advice to the next generation. What's really heartwarming is that a lot of the reviews I read on the book are actually coming from men. I want to say maybe even more than 50% of the reviews are written by men. So even though I originally wrote this book for young women, I feel that the advice applies across the board. It's supposed to be incredibly pragmatic, incredibly easy to apply, because when you are resourceful when you don't have very many resources in your hand, you make do with whatever you have, a lot of that actually translates to other generations, other geographies. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you. And so I am eager to dig into some of these items. Your your table of contents is, is so tantalizing. And so I just want to just jump into the pieces that I found most intriguing. So could we start off by sharing what is the power to flow and how do we get that? So I opened the book with the most traditional way to basically send someone off on a journey, which is exactly what my friends and family did, as well as my neighbors 
members as I embarked on my journey to come to the United States. What people do is they take buckets of water, and as the individual is departing, they throw these buckets of water after the person as they're driving away or walking away or taking a ferry. The idea is that water always flows and gets to a destination. And they're wishing the person leaving the ability to flow and get to where they want. Water flows around rocks and boulders. And if there is a big barrier, it usually finds cracks. Sometimes it goes underground and becomes underground streams. And that concept of flowing and when you're faced with difficulty, sometimes when you're faced with absolute no's, and to be able to maneuver your way around has really helped me a lot in my career. I've actually used that imagery for myself, and I do think it's a strong imagery. What it means is that no one can stop me. I might not end up exactly where I wanted. I might not end up taking the journey I thought I was going to have, but I'm going to get to the other side one way or the other. Okay, so it's about mindset and a visual and metaphor that sort of triggers that sense of of conviction and motivation. That's great in terms of starting in in your brain. And so then when it comes into into practice in terms like the day-to-day, what are some things that you're in fact doing, actions you're taking to keep that flow power going? Well, some of the simplest things to do is when you want something to actually ask for it. All right. You know, very often we want something and for some reason we are feeling like we cannot actually specifically put it on the table and ask for it. A good example, actually, I share this in the book, is I wanted to be a speaker at a invite-only conference years back. I was the co-founder of a no-name company. I was a no-name person myself. And this was a conference that was really for the elite of the industry, of the technology industry. You're elite now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe so. Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, those types of names would get invited. Not a nobody startup founder. And I had the opportunity to actually have a meeting with the organizer of the conference. And as he, we were talking about the startup and the new technology. And as he was leaving, I said to him, do you know my birthday is coming right up? And he like looked at me like, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and I said, do you know what I want for my birthday more so than anything else? And he took my bait and he said, what? He probably thought, what is she talking about? I said, what I want for my birthday more than anything else is to be a speaker at your conference. And I said that because I knew that I would never get an invite as a attendee. Mm -hmm. The only way I would get invite is if I could actually bring something of real value that would allow me to be a speaker. So he laughed. He thought it was a cute joke. And that was the end of that. But I put my request on the table and literally about maybe four or five months later, I got an email from him. He was putting together a panel. One of the panelists was Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, uh, a couple of other people from the uh, financial industry. And he was very excited to invite me as well because I had a company that was creating a product called CyberCash, which was an electronic payments for the, at the time, emerging e-commerce industry. So the bottom line is, ask. You may receive it. You may not, 
But if you don't, you didn't lose anything. That's a way to flop forward. Oh, that's excellent. And, and I'd love to zoom in into the psyches of your readers and, and as you've engaged in conversations. What are some key reasons why people don't ask and what's sort of the the mental antidote to those excuses? I think the hardest thing for people and the biggest barrier for not asking is being turned down. They feel that if they get turned down, that will really be depressing. They will lose face and they just don't want to go there. So the most important building block to being able to ask what you want is to actually convince yourself that if you are turned down, that's totally okay. It actually is not a disaster and it doesn't take anything from your self-esteem. Once you convince yourself of that, it gets much easier to ask. Okay. Now, as I'm thinking about some things I've been a little bit hesitant or slow to ask for, I think it's been kind of like I really, really want it and there's not any direct urgency. And so I have maybe this conception that somehow I will be more worthy or impressive or persuasive if I do so at a different or later time. And I'm starting to think that that's BS, <laughs> that uh, that's not actually true. As yes. I, as <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with that. I think a lot of people feel that, well, tomorrow I might be in a better position to get a yes. So let me just hold off. Let me just wait until then. I might be in a of higher stature or somehow things might have worked out for me and I might be in a much better position to get the final answer that I want. You know, that would be great, but life doesn't usually work that way. And if we postpone tomorrow, who knows what will happen tomorrow? What will it bring? So in my life, a sense of urgency has always been in me and with me. I have always had this desire to do it now. Partly also, I'm a very impatient person. So asking today, I just want to get it over with. I want to put it on the table. Let them think about it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that's a great point in that it's sort of like upon what evidence or data do we have to suggest that delay will be good? Because there's plenty of, of data points that from my own life in which delay is bad. It's like, oh, I was going to ask for that opportunity from that person I know who likes me, but that person no longer works there or is no longer holds that title or role or position in order to extend that opportunity to me. And so it's like the, the delay hurt me and the delay it's like there's not much hard proof or evidence that it will help me. Absolutely. And I think my impatience actually comes in handy here. I always feel like this is the best time now. Now is better than ever before or ever later. So I embrace things that way. Sometimes I'm full of it. It doesn't work <laughs> out. I was just too premature. I just didn't have the credentials or I didn't. It wasn't the right timing. But I'd rather step forward now then wait. And that's usually working out for me. You know, I'm doing a new startup right now. So I've gone from being a venture capitalist and an angel investor with the power of the checkbook to being a very needy entrepreneur again. And this desire to just ask for things and put it all on the table so that others are thinking about it on my behalf as well. I'm back to that mode and it's working out. That's good. And I know this is hard to pin you to a number, but I think it's, it's helpful context. So when you ask 
for something. And maybe it, you historically have thought or others that you've advised thought, well, you know, I have no, really no business doing this. So I'm not worthy yet. They don't uh, like me enough. I don't have the, the credentials or whatever. Sort of how often do you think people get yeses when you just put yourself out there person to person, face to face? Yeah. Let me tell you uh, more than 50%. Booyah. Yeah. Awesome. So it's more than average. So the good news I feel and the reason why I keep doing it and I recommend it to others is that the probability of getting yes is actually much higher than you thought. And if that is in fact the case for others as well, then it becomes a, you know, you get that positive feedback and you do it more because I've asked in the past and I've gotten what I've wanted more than half the time, then I'm more likely to ask. If you never ask, you'll never get those statistics. And you'll probably just assume that, well, the probability is probably less than 5%. I'll be given what I'm asking for. I'm not talking about outrageous stuff. I'm not talking about going and asking for a big house or a big car or any of that. I'm talking about in your career, asking for a meeting, asking for the audience of someone, asking for feedback from someone you care about, asking to be included at a conference, the professional asks that make a lot of sense for your career, even though maybe it's a little early for you in your career, extend yourself. If you're not a VP of sales, act like you're a VP of sales. If you're not a director of engineering, act like you're a director of engineering. So have that chutzpah to go ask for what you really feel maybe in the future you'll deserve. Ask for it today. Oh, yeah, yes. That's so good. And I'm thinking about, I remember one time I met with someone who asked me just randomly, didn't know him at all about when it comes to some advice about consulting or getting involved. And, and I said, oh, okay, sure. So we chatted and I noticed he had this like detailed notebook of all the people he had reached out to and talked to. It's like, wow. I said, could you tell me how often total strangers like myself have said yes and agreed to meet and chat with you? And he said, oh yeah, let me crunch those numbers. And he, he told me that amongst total strangers, it was about 28% of the time. And so you put it in the context you're talking about, a professional ask and someone that you have some kind of a, of a connection or, or relationship or like-mindedness, affinity and affiliation in some way, that can really skyrocket it past 50%. So that's encouraging. Yeah. The other thing I just want would like to say is if you feel like you're asking for something and it's going to be really one-sided, meaning you're going to be the beneficiary and the other people are really giving you, extending themselves for you, then think of what they will get out of it and then make the ask. It's because it's almost much better to approach someone with something you want, but also be able to articulate from them. To, for them what it is they're going to get. So always think about it from the other side's point of view as well. If I make this request, are they actually going to benefit from giving me what it is that I'm asking for? If you put it in that context, the probability of getting a yes goes up significantly. Perfect. Okay, cool. Well, now to totally change gears, I wanted to get your take on how one goes about developing gravitas. Okay. Well, gravitas is a word that I truly use over and over again that I really feel has guided my career as a woman in technology. And it's a concept that I like to promote, especially for young women. What is gravitas? Gravitas is your dignity and your seriousness all combined together in the workplace. Okay. What it is, is the way you carry yourself, 
the way you dress, the way you make eye contact with someone when you first meet them and shake their hand. It's your openness, your friendliness, and yet your seriousness, your professionalism. Put it all together and you create a package which is basically communicating to the person across from you, I am just as serious as you. I mean to win just like you do. I am your equal and I may be just a tiny bit better. That is a great place to start. I think that I did that as a kid. I did that as a young adult, partly because I really grew up in an environment where things weren't necessarily being handed to me. I didn't always feel like I was the equal of other people, but I wanted to make sure that other people knew that I felt I was their equal. So communicating that very, very early in relationships in your workplace is so important for young women because it sets the tone. It basically subconsciously sends the message to those that are working with you that you mean business and nothing else. Okay. Well, so now I'd love it if you could maybe just really break that down in terms of, you mentioned that the smile and the handshake and such. So I mean, could you give us some examples that you see frequently in terms of gravitas conveying versus gravitas destroying behaviors you see time and time again as you meet and interact with people? So I think gravitas, is very, let's just start with dress because that's the external packaging and it's easy to decipher what it communicates. I have my whole professional career and you have to realize at 21 years old, I was a semiconductor design engineer in a semiconductor company back in the early 80s, and the world was quite different. I mean, it was technology industry was extremely male-dominated, especially in semiconductors. I was the only woman almost always in my work environments. So for me, it was very clear that I had to communicate a real professional image. And dress actually says a lot about what your intent is, why you're there. I know that as we've gone to casual Fridays and then we've gone into casual dress, it has become the acceptable norm for dress has become much wider. And with that, actually, there's a lot of confusion on the recipient's end. So personally for me, my dress going to work has looked very different than my dress on the weekends or my dress going out at night. My going to work dress has always been extremely serious, extremely professional, and I've always looked to see if I can dress as if I'm someone at a higher level in the organization than my current level. So as a young woman, as a 24-year-old, 25-year-old, I really wanted to look much more like one of those VPs. Now, happens to be there were no female VPs in my company, but there were female VPs in adjacent industries, other industries. So I wanted to dress for a role I was aspiring to, not just dress for my role of today. And I know it sounds very old-fashioned, but it certainly has made a very big difference for me. Also, I think when you meet someone, to really have the posture of standing up really on your own two feet, to have a firm handshake, to put out your hand first, especially if you're with a man shaking their hand, for the woman to extend their hand first. What it shows is power. It shows actually affirmative behavior. It shows I am choosing 
to shake your hand versus I'm reacting to you. And pretty much everything, it's taking that first step. It's just we lead with so many subtle messages. And gravitas means that as a young woman, you are leading. You know what you want in that relationship, and you're taking charge. Okay. And so and I'm thinking, we talk about so many subtle messages. I think a lot of it is even below the realm of our consciousness in terms of what we're doing and what we're putting out there. And yet, I think if you have that sense of belief, I guess I'm also thinking, I'm kind of thinking about like method acting here in terms of rather than an actor fixating on, okay, I need to do this with my eyebrows and this with my hands and this with my chest and sort of hitting a series of movements that they want to, to convey an emotion. Rather, they just get into the place where they're, they feel that emotion. So that all these Absolutely. things flow naturally. So I guess I'm thinking maybe a, a central sort of belief or attitude is, does someone really believe and feel that they are equal? to the people that they're speaking with or engaging with, or that they are just a worker and someone so much more impressive and influential and amazing relative to them. So how do you think about just, I guess, the fundamental mindset, self-belief stuff there? Yeah, well, I think it unfortunately usually starts very early in our lives. And therefore, if we have children, it's very important to ingrain in them that sense of self-confidence, and we can talk about that some more. But it's that self-confidence that comes through. You're absolutely right. And the advice I give in Power Up, How Smart Women Win in the New Economy, is all about dressing in stuff that makes you feel powerful. Because if you do, if you are walking out of your house and you say to yourself, wow, I really look good, I feel powerful, I feel just so, so great today, you're going to communicate that to people. I have a story in the book about my college classmate, Christy Wagner, who basically had nothing to do with the computer industry. She had a great degree in biology, but she got a computer industry job. And I said, Christy, how do you do it? You, you don't know this stuff. <laughs> I had a double E degree. So I was like, I was just amazed she had so much self-confidence. She got a job. She said, you know what? I put on my bitchin' clothes and I get out of my house and I walk into that office and I feel so good. And sure enough, she was incredibly successful because she had that attitude. It didn't take her very long to learn. She obviously was a smart woman. She was a quick study. But it was that attitude that carried her forward. She didn't walk in saying, well, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. And these other people, please let me sit all the way in the back and not get noticed. No, she put herself out there and people took her lead. She looked like she knew what they, she was doing and they believed that she knew she what she was doing. You know, I really like how you've zoomed in on, on clothes and how they make you feel. And, and I'm kind of reflecting on, I remember there was a, a number of occasions I went on a speed dating event in sort of the same event, same place across multiple years. And one year I had some shirts that were sort of custom made to my measurements. And so I, I sported one of those. And what do you know? Uh, that year, 
I had like three times as many women interested. And so, and I think... It's not, <laughs> it's not the truth because you felt so great. Oh yeah. And I'm sure part of it was, hey, it looks good. But another huge part of it is that I just, I felt a sense of, of comfort and confidence. And for me, I think when it comes to clothes, you know, fit is really king. It's like, is it kind of pinching and tugging or billowing or is it just, hmm, Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and the key is, of course, whatever it is for you, figure that out. Put on those clothes. See which clothes make you feel better. It might not be your clothes. It might be your hair. It might be something else. But whatever it is, embrace it. Because if you feel great about yourself, others will think the same. Yes. You know, I also think it's really powerful to be able to reflect upon victory moments and accomplishments and achievements. And so that those are, are more top of mind than the times that you you totally screwed <laughs> screwed up in, in a similar context. So any other quick tips on the confidence game? So I always feel that what works for me is projecting myself in a winning position that I really want. So if I really want to close a customer or pro- turn a prospect into a customer, I will think about them six months out. And we're having a celebration dinner because actually our software has really increased their sales. And they're telling us how fantastic it has been. So I do these mental imagery that makes me feel like I actually have made my customer's life so much better. I have increased their business. I have solved a problem that they couldn't solve before. I've brought efficiency. And when I create these images for myself, I start believing that, in fact, our software can do that. So when I meet them, I am talking to them with so much more passion, with so much more conviction. And same thing when you're fundraising. When you're fundraising as an entrepreneur, you're sitting across from venture capitalists. They're all powerful because they happen to have the money. But are they? You are actually the one who's going to make them money. You actually are the one that they should be chasing because if they're not an investor in your company, but others are, they're going to feel so sorry. They're going to feel so left out. So getting yourself, uh, doing these pep talks with yourself, I'm going to meet that investor, but in fact, that investor, you know, I'm giving them the opportunity to invest in me. I'm giving them the half hour that they might not even deserve, but I will give it to them. And let the other side feel like it's really an honor to be with you. It's really an opportunity to be with you. Oh, that's so fun. And I think there's some gurus about pitching, and I'll find them and have them on the show one of these days. That's kind of a huge part of their whole approach. And and people say they don't ask for the money. They just take the money because... (laughs) Exactly. And listen, I have done a lot of pitching at Salesforce, where I'm the first investor and founding board member. We could not raise a penny of venture capital. And it's hard to believe that with Salesforce now building the tallest building west of the Mississippi. But it's not always easy. And yet we never got discouraged just because VCs didn't get it. We just said, hey, they're just not as smart as we thought they would be. <laughs> so so it's that attitude really comes in and helps you out when things are not going your, your way. And that ability to flow. So we went and found money from private investors. It took a lot more work because we raised it in small chunks, but so be it. We were going to persevere. Okay. Well, once again, to dramatically change the topic, but I think there's probably some good overlap at the same time. I'd like your 
perspective on how can one be better heard at meetings? And, and I'm thinking about some scenarios where it's almost comical or enraging where two people sort of say just about the same thing and one is, is just sort of uh, brushed aside and the other one is people are sort of vigorously nod like, yes, this makes a lot of sense. I'm excited by what you've said. So what's behind that? How are you better heard there? Yeah, I'm going to address that. But before that, I want to say something else. And that is if you're sitting in a meeting and you're thinking something, which we all do, but you're holding off on saying it, don't hold off, say it. Because if you're thinking of a thought that you think the rest of the team should hear, this is actually value add to the group, but you're holding off. There's a chance every minute you hold off, there's a chance someone else will say it before you. So it's, again, comes back to that, be bold. So now rule number one is if you think of something that you think is worthwhile in the meeting, don't just talk to hear yourself talk. You've got to have something to say that's really worthwhile. But if you think it's worthwhile, don't hold off. Don't be missing in your head how you should be saying it Mm -hmm. and repeating it. Also, the more you think about a thought and try to say it just the right way, the less you're listening to whatever else is going on in the meeting. Right. Right. So it's much better to get it out of your chest so that you can actually pay attention to what's going on. Now, number two, the question you asked me, and that is, you have said it, and the conversation continued as if no one even really heard you, or maybe someone said something. And then about five minutes later, if you are a woman, it's usually a man who says something almost exactly the same or very, very similar. And people say, wow, that was great, Greg. Good for you. That's a very good observation. Now, what do you do? You sit there, usually just do and feel so horrible and really start saying, oh, it's life is so unfair. Women, we will never be able to have an equal chance to be heard. And, you know, don't go there. Don't make yourself a victim. Instead, what I recommend you do is you say, Greg, thank you so very much for amplifying what I said a few minutes ago. (laughs) And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Because when I said it, the team didn't seem like they picked up on it. So I really appreciate you underscoring what I said. What did you do? You just took the credit back. You didn't get angry. You didn't get sour. You didn't start saying, oh, gosh, I'll never get recognition. Look at this guy. He copied me. Okay. So the other thing that I say about meetings is if you're kind of a timid person and not everyone is as aggressive as sometimes these companies require you to be, if you're sort of on the timid side, find someone who can actually be your amplifier in a meeting. One of your colleagues, if you're female, it's probably better to find a male colleague to be your amplifier. What do I mean by that? When you make a comment that is worthwhile, Your amplifier would say, just like Magdalena said, I agree and give you credit and repeat what you just said. That person just amplified you, gave you credit so that the rest of the team doesn't forget that was your idea and put it back on the table when maybe you weren't getting as much attention to your point. An amplifier is such a great tool to use in your career. And you know what you do for that amplifier? You become their amplifier. You become the one that does it for him. And it's a symbiotic relationship. And especially if you're the timid one, you learn how to speak up to 
second your friends, your colleagues' ideas. And sometimes it's easier to second someone else than to come up with your original idea. So it's great practice for public speaking as well, speaking up in a meeting. Okay. So in your example in which you said, thank you, Greg, for amplifying what I said previously, I'm wondering if there are some sort of misbehaving professionals who are kind of credit stealing or just would feel furious if if you sort of reasserted your claim to the credit for the idea in the meeting. Any pro tips on navigating those waters? So I think that if you have the right app and if you are feeling like you are in control and someone maybe belittles you for what you said or they don't give you credit or they just actually still walk over you, that's okay. You'll do it again in the next meeting. And it's just a practice. You're not going to win each one. So you have to have some patience as well that you're not always going to get the credit, but to hang in there and to make a practice of it. And over time, people will actually learn to listen to you because they'll realize that if they don't give you the time of day, you're going to come back and ask for it. And and along these lines, I'm wondering about environments in which, you know, sometimes Dr. Evil, who inquired, why must I be surrounded by idiots? I think there are times when there are professionals who are good and smart and sharp, and yet... It's like both their bosses and their colleagues all seem, you know, obliviously unaware of something that's just so clearly true and right and good and necessary. And it seems like they don't even get or appreciate how you are raising critical factors. And so I have a number of ideas are coming to mind, whether it's, you know, people are doing some group collaborations and trying to win over a, a big customer or grants. There's like, hey, you, you straight up have errors or inconsistencies in this proposal that you're putting forward. Like, come on now. So I, I think that's a uniquely tricky situation. But uh, I'd love your view on that one too. Well, so first of all, if you don't have a supportive boss, if you have a boss who is minimizing you or ignoring you, it probably is time to find another boss because there's no one more important for your career advancement than your current boss. And I cannot stress that enough. And I do talk about a boss as potentially a sponsor where they are actually trying to open up doors for you and help you advance in your career. Now, we cannot always find another job. We cannot always find another boss. Sometimes we're just stuck with the situation. And there, what I would do is I would pull my boss aside and say, what is it that I need to do to actually have you hear me better? to actually have you give me more credit because you know what? I work for you. If I win, you win. I'm here to make you look better. So how can we collaborate more? How can I actually really move your career forward? So if you put it always in terms of the other person, what can you bring to them? How can you make their career better? How can you help them get the recognition from the CEO? then they'll actually listen to you because you're giving them a very personal reason to collaborate with you. Then it's no longer about you, it's about them. And then over time, they might actually actually start you know, confiding in you and coming to you, 
asking you to do certain things. So it's that level of collaboration with your boss and with some of the higher-ups in the organization. If you think everyone that's around you is kind of an idiot and they just don't get it, you're at the wrong company. Okay, got it. Well, uh, <laughs> well, Mike Delena, I think we could go for hours, but I might need to push fast forward a little bit. So can you tell me, is there anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear quickly about some of your favorite things? Yeah. So I think the most important thing, and I open the book with this, is not being afraid to fail. Because if we are afraid to fail, we will never really be able to take risks. We're always going to go down to the common denominator. The ability to fail, to accept failure and say, you know what, I'm going to probably fail multiple times before I get to where I want to go. That is really an important mindset. And I certainly have failed multiple times in my careers. They were painful processes, but they made me much stronger. And the one thing I knew was that no failure was ever going to stop me. Okay. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? it's inspiring, but a quote that I think very often that one of my old bosses used to say is, you get nothing for trying. It's kind of a harsh quote, but he's absolutely right. And the first time he said that to me, I was very taken aback. I get nothing for trying, like Americans like saying, nice try, good try. But he said, no, (laughs) you get nothing. There's no result. Okay, maybe you'll learn something. But so I often say to myself when I, I think about him, I have to get whatever I'm going after. Just that I tried and I didn't get there. It's okay. I failed. I'm not afraid of failure, but it is not a good try. It's the goal that I'm really after. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, my favorite study uh, is actually one that I did very many years ago when I was looking for a job and I couldn't find one. And I was trying to figure out how I could be an entrepreneur because I couldn't find an employer. I did the very first internet user study. And that really put me on the map. I actually got a speaking spot at a conference at the very first internet conference. I presented and I went from being a nobody to being somebody and actually someone who got regarded as an expert. And then I found my co-founder for my first entrepreneurial company. So doing the user study in an area, you're going to learn a lot. If you can fund it yourself, great. If not, you know, study up with others. But I do actually think conducting studies is a great way to gain expertise in some of the new fields that are emerging. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Alice in Wonderland. Thank you. And a favorite tool? (laughs) My favorite tool ever is a smile. It really works. Awesome. And how about a favorite habit? Asking every day as I drive to work or as I commute to work on ferry or walking to work, whatever it is I'm doing, I always ask myself, if there was only one thing I could accomplish today, what would they be? What would that be? I want to every day establish the most important task for myself and then tell myself that I cannot leave that office until I've accomplished that. It's amazingly hard to accomplish even one simple task sometimes because the day gets so crowded and you become so reactive, especially if people are working for you and they're constantly coming to talk to you. So 
making that decision every day. There's one task. I have to get this done. It's the highest leverage. And if I don't get it done, I'm not leaving that office until I get it done. All right. And is there a particular nugget that you share in your book and and speaking and working with folks that seems to really connect and resonate, getting them quoting it back to you often? I think the biggest quote I have gotten out of this book is people telling me that they themselves have started using the imagery of flowing, especially when things don't go well for them or they don't go as they predicted or wanted. That thought that, okay, I will find a way around this because I'm like water. You cannot stop water. It might stop for a little while, but then it'll become a roaring waterfall on the other side. So it's amazing how I thought no one would really embrace that. They would think that the whole concept of people throwing water after you as you depart is some arcane habit of a different culture, but it really seems to resonate with people. Awesome. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? To Magdalena.com. Also, you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn as Magdalena Yishil. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Never be a victim. Never. Never let anybody make you feel like a victim. And take the word hurt out of your professional vocabulary. The workplace is never a place to feel hurt. Okay. Well, Magdalena, thanks so much for sharing this perspective. Powerful stuff. It served you well, and I think will serve many listeners well. So so please keep doing what you're doing. And it's been great chatting. I hope it will help very many, especially young people, push forward in their careers and get to where they want. I don't know about you, but I've been rather emboldened ever since I had this conversation with Magdalena about the professional ask and and doing it and how my quote unquote justifications or rationalizations or good reasons for not doing it are not so good. They're really just based in fear or some sort of anxiety and it's uh they don't hold up. They don't hold water. So I liked how she set me straight and I hope you too feel a greater sense of courage and conviction that it is right and appropriate and just for you to go ahead and make that request and sooner rather than later, maybe even today. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we've referenced here, that's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep250. And I hope you'll push subscribe if you haven't already. You'll catch our next guest. It is Mike Lewis. He is talking about when do you make a jump? If you're doing something kind of stable, kind of secure, and you have a dream that's a little less stable and secure, when do you actually take that leap? So I hope to catch you then and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.